Hello and welcome to 4 and 3, a podcast breaking down four of the most important stories of the day and three things you need to know about them all from a Christian perspective. I want to welcome in regular listeners from the CBN News Daily Rundown. We've joined forces with them and we'll be joining y'all each Wednesday as the 4 and 3 podcast is featured on the Daily Rundown. Glad you all are here. Today's Wednesday, July 14th, 2021. I'm Dan Andros and coming up, uh, the faith of Maya Moore, WNBA star and her family. Incredible story of faith and hope after they helped a man who was wrongly imprisoned for over two decades uh, to his freedom. Amazing story. We'll talk about that. Plus, Alec Baldwin's wife, Hilaria, says she identifies as ethnically fluid. We'll have the detail on how Christians are helping try to stop Chicago's violence and Cuban-American UFC fighter. Uh, UFC fighter shreds communism amid freedom protests. We'll have those stories and more with Trey Gons Phillips from FaithWire.com. Trey, what's going on? Yeah, hey, happy happy hump day, happy Wednesday <laughs> to you. Indeed, and uh, you're going to be you're going to hearing him. Yeah, you're, I was going to say you're going to be off and then uh, leaving me here yeah. solo for the next two days, which is fine. This is fine. You know, you've earned it. I know. Well, you know, I, I hate to leave you by yourself because that's <laughs> four and three. That's a lot of stories to cover all it by is. yourself with, you know, and, and three things like it just, you know, but hey, like uh, you used to work for, for Fox News. And I remember like having watched Glenn Beck's show when he was on Fox, <laughs> able to fill up an entire hour with no guests. Entire hour with no guests. So plenty of words. Well, plenty of words, plenty of things <laughs> yeah, to talk definitely. about. Definitely. I'll just be talking about it by myself, so no problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Let's uh, let's hop right in. I want to get into this first story here, Trey. WNBA star Maya Moore. She, she kind of shocked the sporting world a couple years ago when she just, at the top of her game, winning championships, pretty much the best player uh, in women's basketball, just said she's taking a break, putting her career on hold in the middle of her prime, and it was all for... Um, she said to pursue ministry efforts at the time. And, you know, of course, now we're seeing that it was the pursuit of justice primarily um, for an innocent man, Jonathan Irons, who was behind bars, put behind bars uh, as a teen uh, for a crime that he, uh, he was later exonerated for. And uh, ESPN's new documentary, Breakaway, which is part of their 30 for 30 series, and they're always really great. Um, that debuted last night, and really her her and her family's faith in Christ were really on center stage, and it was great to see. Um, and you could, and they kind of detailed the whole story. We covered it on faithwire.com when Irons was freed from prison after those, I think, 23 years behind bars. Um, but it really lays out how it all happened, which is, I thought, really cool, um, because it's ordinary acts of faith. Uh, that happened. This was before Maya Moore was famous, so this was not like some celebrity coming in and just making things happen. Um, it began with really a simple act by the chaplain at the prison that Irons had been uh, assigned to after you know getting convicted as an 18-year-old, and he was kind of in shock and not really interacting with anyone at the prison and just sort of like, I'm facing 50 years in prison. I'm 18 years old. My gosh, what's going on? And so this chaplain noticed him that he was looking kind of sloppy and his pants were falling down, those sorts of things. And he said, he said, you know, he said, come on, let's go to chapel. You got to you got to clean yourself up. Pull your pants up. We're going to chapel. And uh, he said it was just the way he was. It sort of just grabbed him. And he was like, oh, OK, I'll go. And so he went and um, that act. So him just noticing, first of all, just kind of noticing someone who was down and dejected within that prison. Uh, was one small act. So then he goes and then he meets 
um, uh, Hugh Flowers, who was volunteering as the choir director at the Jefferson City Correctional Center. So um, that led to, you know, once he was at ch- at church, at chapel, he talks to Flowers, then he Flowers finds out that uh, Irons can actually sing. He, he said he was, quote, had perfect pitch, which he had, Irons had no idea what that even was. So, so he starts singing, they have a relationship. Then Flowers' extended family, his daughter Sherry and her husband Reggie are... They start getting involved in this case because they, you know, they hear about this relationship that that their dad has with this this young man. So then they start looking into his case, and Reggie starts getting like obsessed with it, and he's just really diving into this thing. And he starts noticing some some problems with the case, saying like, "How in the world did did he get convicted of this? So they have lack this lack of evidence." Um, so he really starts diving into it and you know, this is going on now for months and then years where they're looking into things, they're talking to lawyers, they're seeing what they can do because they're really starting to believe that he might be innocent um, and and as as he said he was. And so turns out that Sherry and Reggie, these two that are now just really diving into his case, are Maya Moore's godparents. And so Maya eventually, she she was growing in her faith this time all through her high school years because she's only a teenager as all this was going down. I think she was only eight when uh, he was actually arrested uh, for the crime that had that had happened. Um, so so anyway, so all of these connections just goes to show, you know, just these couple of simple acts of faith then led to that connection. So Maya and he become friends. And Maya actually herself said that she kind of went out of her comfort zone because uh, this was kind of something that she was n- not used to doing, like going to see people in prison, but her family had become close. Um, and so she went, and then they kind of struck up a friendship, and they'd become friends over the years, talking you know, often about the case and things that were going on. And at that time, then she becomes famous. She goes on to UConn, stars there, goes in the WNBA, is doing, is doing great there, starts winning championships. Um, and then they continue, all this time they continue... Uh, working on the case and um, it's just amazing to see it all come together they finally find the right evidence um, that that shows that there was no physical evidence there were other fingerprints there at the scene that weren't his so um, basically exonerated from they're saying that if they had all this and known all this they wouldn't have been able to even try the case so um, then you see the culmination of it all happen as we reported on faith wire where uh, eventually he is released from prison and now he actually then he proposed to Maya Moore, they're actually now married, uh, and um, just a great documentary, Trey, because not a left or right issue here, um, but I really just wanted to profile it because here's somebody who's putting their, you know, kind of their feet where their faith is, right? You know, she's a star in the game, and she actually talks about her faith and says that she had rooted her identity in Christ before going off to Yukon. Like this, her faith was growing kind of in middle school and high school. She didn't have a father figure. And so she was kind of struggling. And then, you know, by going to church and really leaning into her faith, she put her identity in Christ. And it was that that kind of allowed her to sort of then make that decision. Because if you don't, if you become a big star, I think most people would kind of say, well, that's what I am, right? They identify with that. And so because she did not have that as her primary way to identify herself, it enabled her, and she says this, to say, hey, I'm going to leave it all. This is this is more important. Um, and so she still hasn't come back to playing ball yet because that only happened last year. Um, and so yeah. they're now working, and she's really focused on criminal justice reform. 
um, because they obviously this case was particularly egregious in in how he was put behind bars at 18 for 50 years um, with all the holes that were in the case. They go through it all in the documentary, all the different details and stuff uh, that were wrong with the case. So just a great documentary, yeah. remarkable story. And um, it, it really does try to make you wonder how many people have been wrongly imprisoned because you know it's, that's the case. And, you know, our justice system obviously is not perfect and always trying to improve it. But, man, when you think about that, it's it's a tough one to think about. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's kind of just is, is unfortunately a consequence of having a utilitarian style justice system obviously they're going to end up being you know the the vast majority of the people who are in prison are rightly there but then there are going to be situations and with so many people imprisoned over the years it's a pretty large number uh who probably end up in prison like like him and should never have been behind bars and certainly shouldn't have been behind bars for as long as they are in certain cases so um yeah it's just a, a really encouraging story uh, how his how his journey progressed, and now obviously he's free, which is something we're celebrating. And um, the way Maya acted kind of reminds me of a interview I did with Christine Kane one time, when I asked her about what you know. There's so many different issues going on in society today, like it almost feels overwhelming for Christians to be able to engage all of these different issues uh, well. And she said, "Well, the, the thing for me, how I live, is just to do the next right thing." Um, so it seems like that's exactly what Maya did. She just did the next right thing. And it led her, you know, over years uh, of having conversations with this guy and getting to know him and all that. It led to to this end. And it was just like you mentioned, Dan, just simple acts of faith, mm-hmm. like one after the other. Uh, and this is where where it ended up. And it's just it's cool to look back and, and watch that documentary and, and read about her story to see God's hand in, in orchestrating all of it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So highly recommend. I think it's on again tonight. So Awesome. All right, so story number two. Uh, so uh, in the age of sexual fluidity, uh, actor Alec Baldwin's <laughs> wife, Hilaria Baldwin, is saying that she's now ethnically fluid. Uh, so the 37-year-old author uh, faced backlash last year when she, rebu- when she was rebuked by others uh, for committing, quote, a decade-long grift where she impersonates a Spanish person. Uh, Hilaria Baldwin, whose birth name is Hillary, has claimed she was born in Spain before moving to Boston, where she was raised. It's since been revealed that the yoga instructor and author was actually born in Boston, Massachusetts, uh, and, you know, visits her her hometown, her heritage, family, long, you know, generations past, who currently live in Spain. She'll go visit them occasionally growing up. Uh, but now she's saying that she's culturally and ethnically fluid in a new instagram post she wrote when you are multi it can feel hard to belong you're constantly going back and forth trying to be more of this or more that you feel you have to explain why you are the way you are trying to fit into a world of labels when there might not be one that perfectly defines you you will never quite fit in she wrote because the other parts of you shape and influence all your parts so i suppose in a way that what she's saying kind of makes sense you know in our current culture and it should be obvious most americans are multi-ethnic in some way and there's nothing wrong with celebrating heritage i think the issue here is her claiming something that is disputed might not actually be uh you know physically accurate uh, so then the, there are some people dan it reminds me of like and uh, an naacp chapter president or former uh, chapter president rachel dolezal hmm. she's a white woman who identifies as black uh, you know, I have to say, logically, it does follow. If people can be praised for identifying with you know, the sex opposite from their biology, 
I don't know how logically we condemn we can condemn Hilaria or right. Rachel uh, for their quote-unquote transracial identities, uh, but that's nevertheless what's happening. So what's the left saying? Well, Hilaria uh, has faced a whole lot of backlash from the left, like I said. Uh, journalist Emil Niazi was one of the... Uh, her tweet got a lot of attention on social media the other day. She said that Hilaria is representative of a certain kind of wealthy, middle-class white woman who seeks out cultural affections to approximate a personality because they lack any defining character otherwise. It's obviously the obvious criticism there is um, she's suggesting, I guess, that white people don't have any sort of culture. <laughs> so they have to, that's why Hilaria had to say that she's Spanish or has to embrace Hispanic culture because according to this writer, as a white person, she wouldn't have any right. sort of culture. She would yeah. just be a blank script yeah. uh, without that. So what's the right <laughs> saying? Well, conservatives online have pushed back against the suggestion that everything is just fluid. Uh, Matt Vespa at Town Hall wrote that that's just not how this works, uh, pointing out that someone has to have actual physical connections to a sex uh, in order to claim that they are that sex, i.e. the correct anatomy, uh, or they have to have ethnic heritage to claim a certain ethnicity as their own. Uh, so why does it matter? I think this, like the case of Rachel Dolezal, shows how logical the left is, Dan, when it comes to this fluidity stuff. Yeah, uh, It all ends up just falling apart part because it doesn't have any you know roots in reality uh, you know, there are cases for example when people are dealing with like actual gender dysphoria whether it occurred naturally or was pushed on them by those around them uh, is a different story but regardless that that, that should be cre- treated clinically not necessarily praised like our culture does but this is what happens i think when we're consumed by identity politics right like we're reduced to the people are their value is reduced to their ethnicity and their sexuality, their gender identity. Uh, so people are just kind of competing to find a place where they belong in this, uh, this, I guess, woke culture for yeah. lack of a better term. Yeah. And I think people are looking for, um, especially people that have had traumas in their life or maybe they don't have a stable family home and they're looking for an identity. Yeah. They're looking for something that's going to give them value. And now, you know, you see a lot of the sort of this rush to claim some sort of victim status, right? And again, not to say that nothing yeah. happens to certain groups, but it's it's hard to deny now that people yeah. are kind of lining up, uh, especially these more ridiculous cases that are, you know, these trans different things that, you know, who even knows what they are, you know, these new sexual identities that people are coming up with um, that I've seen on like TikTok, you know, they're coming up with, I can't even think of a example name, you know, Cis, this, that, you know, they come up with all these different yeah. uh, prefixes. But um, it, but it's like a rush to say, like, we are, you know, so demonized and, and this. And, and it seems like people are trying to find their identity in those sorts of things. And, you know, it's the same thing with, you know, the Maya Moore story as far as finding your identity. Where do you find it? She found it in the right place. She found it in Christ. That's what makes you valuable. Um, and when yeah. you see people like that, you're going to see them as... God's creation first. We're all made in the image of God, the Imago Dei. And that's something that we can unite on and that we can mo- that will motivate us to treat other people uh, the way we want to be treated and and to yeah. um and to and to seek you know justice in that way, not in all of these other identities and coming up with all of these other, you know, ways to kind of classify ourselves. Yeah, and I'm always like these stories always kind of strike me as as really indicative of 
like I've said, how, how broken down our culture has become when it comes to identity, uh, because we get the left in particular, but pretty much everybody gets, gets so upset when someone like Rachel Dolezal, who's clearly a white woman, uh, claims to be a black person and claims to identify with the African-American community and, and, and all of that. Uh, and, and she's kind of derided, like that's, that's absolutely wrong. You can't do that. Uh, you know, you're, that's, that's not your heritage and it's, it's just appropriation and all this stuff for you to do that. Yeah. Uh, but then sexually, if someone is male and identifies as female or vice versa, we have to immediately jump to, oh, well, they have gender dysphoria and it's something that we need to encourage and celebrate and give them treatment and, you know, down the list, down the line of, of, of all the, the appropriate responses. It's like, I don't, how does, how is one okay? And the other one is just like right. anathema. Like it's, <laughs> right. it's it both, both no. have to be okay or both have to be wrong. Like we have to see right. both uh, the same way because there's not really much of a difference in the logic of it. I understand that there may be differences in the psychology of it, but there's not a difference in the outcome there. Um, you know, in, in, in what we're dealing with, we're dealing with somebody who's claiming something that they physically are not in either situation. Um, so, you know, it's, I think you're right, Dan, or you're coming from, it's about an identity issue. And then we need as the church to be encouraging people to find their identity and their, uh, the fact that they're an image bearer of God and created in his image and, and, you know, hopefully lead them to the gospel when we have an opportunity in our day-to-day lives. Yeah. Amen to that. Let's be praying that people find their identity there first before searching it yeah. uh, in all, all these wrong places. So, all right, let's, uh, let's head into story number three. So for the last 20 years, Chicago, man, they've been seeing just this seemingly unending wave of violence. And uh, according to the uh, DOD, in the last 20 years, more people were killed in Chicago than in the combined military conflicts in Afghanistan and Iraq. Spiritual leaders in the city now, though, are joining together, hoping to change that narrative. You, you get a lot of brushing this under the rug in a lot of cases uh, as far as the national narrative um but these spiritual leaders they're going to be fighting this battle with the power of the gospel you may know the name pastor dimas salabarios and he's a former drug dealer from new york we've profiled him on faithwire i know cbn has as well and he knows firsthand the reality of gun violence um he grew up in the middle of it all as as a big time drug dealer uh, before god sort of saved him and pulled him out of that but he um fasted for 40 days you know kind of as a sign to end violence and then he felt um compelled to take america where it happens uh in this film chicago america's hidden war it's not a trailer for this by the way it looks looks you know it's obviously sad but it looks fantastic it looks really really well done um they spent two years filming in the city and then salaberrios told cbn news Uh, that he sees what's happening there as a spiritual battle. He said, I'd say in Chicago, there's definitely a demonic presence that I sense when I'm praying and interacting with people on the street. Pastor Corey uh, Brooks, who heads a ministry in Chicago called Project Hood, agrees with that sentiment. He said there's a real spiritual battle, battle going on in the city of Chicago for the lives of people. There seems to be a spirit of murder throughout the city. So uh, this documentary, which uh, did become eligible for an Academy Award earlier this year, showcases um, how the church is combating uh, the darkness with prayer and evangelism. He said they're having, uh, or Pastor Brooks said they're having marches, going door to door. They're doing the things uh, that they not have normally uh, done. 
and through his ministry, he reaches out. He reaches out directly to gang members, uh, and he said, "We have a we have a violence prevention team uh, of ten full time employees that go out into the neighborhood and they help make sure there's no retaliation." So you can imagine what that looks like on the ground. That ministry, um, yeah, it's it's you know really, really, uh, really risky stuff. I would imagine, um, and so. Uh, they said that um, Salaberio said that a similar effort saved him from a life of crime and violence in New York. As I mentioned, he was a big drug dealer. He said they were Christians. Three women reached out to me when I was a quote-unquote street god, one of the largest drug dealers, and they said, can we pray for you? He said, I didn't know what that was. When they laid hands on me, the power of God knocks me to the floor. He said, demons come manifesting out of me. They started praying in the name of Jesus. I felt a peace come over me like never before, and I quit selling crack cocaine. Amazing story uh, from him. Um, Brooks, uh, the other pastor, said he believes the same power and peace can now make a difference in Chicago. And he said, at the end of the day, he's like, we can't try to supply jobs. We can try to supply counseling. We can try to give all kinds of different resources. But I really do believe, ultimately, it's a spiritual warfare and a battle that we're in in a battle for people's souls. So um, Chicago, America's Hidden War in Chicago, amazing, amazing uh, film coming out here that that Christians should have an eye on. You can check out CBNnews.com uh, and check out where you can where you can see that. So obviously not a left or right issue here, Trey. Um, although yeah. sometimes the violence in Chicago is used sort of as fodder for talking points on the gun issue and hypocrisy from politicians and such. Um, but you know, seeing those Christians on the ground and seeing how uh, they're the ones, you know, well, God's the one that can really change things ultimately. Uh, anytime we can showcase what Christians are doing in the name of Christ and how they're engaging to save lives there on the ground and how God is saving lives through, you know, through these Christians, it's I think it's hugely important important to show and to and to spread the word on that. Yeah, it seems like there's a, a common thread between the story I did about Hilaria and this story, which is that the root of these issues is a lack of of understanding of where we belong mm. and, a, and not having a sense of belonging or identity. Uh, and like saying that we can provide jobs, we can give them counseling, but that's not going to solve the issue. A lot yeah. of times they'll end up just going right back to the bad habits they had before, whether it's drug addiction or selling drugs or, you know, prostitution or sleeping around, you know, whatever the issue is. Like a lot of times, you know, we might be able to put a bandaid on it, but the the issue is still going to be there and they're, they have a propensity to go back to it. But if we show people Christ, we show them love, show them love and we meet them where they're at. Like we, uh, we understand their situation, their experience, their unique circumstances. And we do our best as believers to meet them there in that and provide them their physical needs, but then also try to uh, reach them spiritually and psychologically with, with, you know, the gospel that'll actually cure the, the illness there, the actual issue there, uh, because it's a lot deeper than just uh, these, the outward stuff that we're seeing, because that's just a consequence, right, of of what's happening. That's just a consequence of our broken, sinful nature. Uh, to fix all of that stuff, you need to first fix the heart, uh, and then you can, you know, deal with all of that stuff afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. Amen. So, all right, story number four. So, UFC fighter Jorge Masvidal, uh, he, he was born and raised in Miami by a Cuban father and Peruvian mother. He condemned communism and the Cuban dictatorship in a new video posted to social media Monday amid all the protesting that's happening in Havana and other cities around Cuba. Uh, so as 
As massive protests continue, the 36-year-old athlete said he recalls hearing horror stories from his father, who talked about his escape from communism as a 14-year-old boy. Uh, Masvidal said his father likened the Cuban dictatorship to, quote, a killing machine, adding that he wants to use Masvidal, the UFC fighter, wants to use his platform to do what I feel is correct, what I feel everybody should be doing, which is fighting against oppression, dictatorships, communism, and anything of that nature. He went on to say, this oppression has been going on for 61 years. It's not just because of the pandemic, or it's not just because they just ran out of medicine, because they've been out of medicine. They've been out of resources and been out of food because of the corrupt government, the extreme corruption over there, he said, where only a few at the top eat and everybody else just has to suffer. Uh, Masvidal, we should note, endorsed then-President Donald Trump's re-election bid last year. At the time, he said he was doing uh, right in the sense of freedom and of my Latin people and for the black community. Uh, he said Trump got a whole lot of issues wrong, in his opinion, or he, you know, there were ways in which he could do things better. But he said when it comes to minority communities, and especially when it comes to standing up for freedom for minority communities in countries around the world, uh, he agreed with, with Trump's stance on those issues. So what's the left saying? Well, we've seen a lot of responses from Democrats suggesting that most of this uh, happening in Cuba, the protests, uh, is in response to the pandemic and a lack of resources. And while that's certainly a sum of it, it's not the core issue. It's not the root problem, uh, which is communism. So conservatives, what's the right saying, they've pointed out that yes, there is a lack of medicine, there is a lack of medical care available in Cuba right now, but that's just a symptom of the real problem, which is the corrupt regime there, the communist regime uh, that's that's being forced upon Cubans. So why does it matter? Dan, I saw a post yesterday from a pastor in Cuba who asked for American Christians and other believers around the world to be praying for the country because there are people literally dying right now in shelters, and in hospital hallways because of a lack of medical care and a lack of oxygen and ventilators and food and antibiotics for both COVID and all kinds of other medical issues that are just going untreated. He said the government is, quote, not responding to the needs of the people mm. because of how proud they are. He said they're unwilling to seek assistance from other countries who are willing and eager to help. He said, I ask you to please pray, intercede, and go to battle with prayer for Cuba, for the people of Cuba, that the government will step up and actually help accept assistance from the U.S. and other countries uh, who are you know, willing to step in and provide resources to the country and to just you know, humble themselves and, and accept that. And then also for the voices of these freedom protesters to be heard by the government and to you know, for change to actually happen in Cuba, because like Masvidal said, this has been going on for decades and decades. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. This is nothing new there. And um you know, we, we went over yesterday all the praise that certain politicians and media people have said for Cuba's healthcare system. And clearly this yeah. is not the case. And it's, it's it's all propaganda and nonsense. I mean, um, you, you know, it, obviously it's a struggling nation and communism is pretty much one of the main reasons to blame for it. And um, And so we should just definitely be putting political agendas aside. And apparently they don't want to do that. And it's sad. It's sad. And because even if you want to help, it's very hard to do it. So prayer is yeah. really one of the only options we have right now. So um, definitely, yeah. definitely add Cuba and Cubans struggling there under onto your prayer list because um, prayer really does work. And, um, you know, ultimately God's will will be done, but but prayer does work. And so we should be we should be doing that uh, as Christians. So. 
All right, that is uh, that is all the yeah. time we have for uh, this episode. As always, for more news from a Christian perspective, head on over to faithwire.com and cbnnews.com. Make it a daily visit. Also, go ahead and subscribe to this podcast. Leave a rating on iTunes. Uh, and Trey will be out next couple days. I'll be here uh, conversing <laughs> with myself and you guys. We'll all do it together. It'll be great. So God bless you. Yes. Have a great day. Trey, you have a great weekend, and we'll, uh, we'll see you all back here tomorrow. God bless. <laughs>